wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Liz Weiss is a reluctant gospel singer who yearns to see gospel justice fall across the earth. Her current single, See the Day, is a longing for that kind of justice. I'm exceptionally thrilled that she's today's guest on Bleeding Daylight. Some years ago, I discovered an album that quickly became a favourite of mine. I then started raving about my discovery to friends who began buying their own copies. That album was There's a Light, released back in 2012 by today's guest, Liz Weiss. The album was re-released in 2015 and climbed to number 6 on Billboard's top gospel albums and 13 on the R&B chart. There's been another album since then, The Amazing Save Me, and a few single releases, all of them displaying Liz's soulful vocals, bringing to life some incredible gospel lyrics. Liz, it's an incredible honour to welcome you to Bleeding Daylight. Thanks for your time. Oh, thanks for your interest. You're one of five children. That's a reasonable-sized family. Was it a musical childhood for you? Not really. I feel like, like the, the story goes for middle children, I pretty much kept to myself. I would sing for hours in the basement or my bedroom, but I mean, my mom would sing throughout the house, but that slowly disappeared as working multiple jobs to raise five kids might cause one to stop singing <laughs> at mm-hmm. some point. But in my lineage... There is a lot of musical influences. My grandfather played the guitar and sang. My grandmother played the piano and sang. My mom is from L.A. and she was moving towards a career in being a jazz musician. But my grandmother was very old-fashioned. And according to my mom, she was offered a record deal and my grandmother... Uh, didn't really support it because she wanted my mom to be a wife and raise a family. Um, And so my mom kind of let go of that dream to honor her mother. And then my dad, who I didn't really grow up with, was in a famous 70s and 80s band. And even though he wasn't a part of my life, um, the music just passed through somehow. Osmosis is what I would like to say (laughs) to the genes. (laughs) <laughs> so so there was that influence all along, but at that stage, it wasn't something that you, you really took up, apart from just singing around the home. Oh, no. I was, I was a shy kid. And I don't really remember that, but I've had people who knew me when I was in um, kindergarten or middle school that have since sent me messages saying, I never imagined the shy little girl would grow up to be singing on stage. Music was never, ever a part of my plan. I always wanted to be an actress, be in movies, be a movie star, mainly because I didn't see any characters that looked like me on screen. And so I wanted to be that for other little brown girls. But that's like leads into a whole other story of health issues that kind of put a halt to being able to go to college for theatre. You were moving towards that, that kind of a life, but as you say, your, your plans had to take a, a back seat when you hit your late teens. Tell me about the, the health issues that you faced. Yeah, so when I was 15, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and by the age of 19, I was on dialysis for kidney failure. 
And for three and a half years, ups and downs, mostly downs with my health, including congestive heart failure and becoming so ill from the process of dialysis that I was removed from the transplant list because my heart, I would have had to have a heart transplant as well. And so by the time I was 20, I kind of gave up on any dreams of ever going to school for theater or being an actress or anything in that realm, let alone thinking I'd actually live to graduate from a four-year university. And my last year on dialysis, I don't know what happened. I started taking this medication for my heart, which is not the story of a lot of people that I met at the clinics when I would go for my dialysis sessions. A lot of people would pass away from the process or from the fear and would stop coming because it was so exhausting on the body. And I got my kidney transplant and in that process I had gone, I had stayed in college the whole time. So I have like an associate of arts, associate of science, a certification in medical assisting. And I graduated with my certification in being a medical assistant because I was like, I think I could do a year long program, even if I don't like live long enough to work in this degree uh, in this certification, I could at least be a voice to people who are in the hospital who are losing hope. I don't, it's, it's like, it feels like another life that I had. There are moments in my life today where I wish I was as strong as I was when I was actually on my deathbed. And so after I got my transplant, I went back to school a month later, which my doctors were not happy about. And I graduated with the certification in being a medical assistant. And just after working in the hospital with cancer patients, it just felt too close to home <laughs> being on the other side of the bed of people who literally were in my same situation four weeks prior. And I did that for a little while before I decided to take the leap to then go to film school. Because if I couldn't be in the movies, at least I could make the movies, right? <laughs> so that's what I decided to do. That sort of medical condition that you went through, I guess would bring all sorts of things in, in life into to sharp focus when you're facing your own mortality. Mm -hmm. Especially at such a young age, I definitely feel like that keeps me living a quote-unquote risky life, which feels counterintuitive to the American dream of working a nine-to-five and having a 401k and getting married with two and a half children with a white picket fence. It just never seemed like a plan for me, especially not knowing how long I had in this life. So, yeah, I went to film school and I worked on set and I would teach myself how to use software programs to create DVDs for short films I shot and learn how to edit and sound design, all these tech things. I really love the technical parts of film. And now that I do music, I love because of this pandemic, I've been recording a lot at home. But before we get into that, uh, going to film school and then graduating and being selected to give the commencement speech and getting invited to work on a TV show for three weeks. That was a paid internship. And then that leading to another job and that leading to another job and then having to pause 
um, which led to me singing on a church record that I never, I just, you know, I never ever wanted to be a singer. But for some reason at this church that I had started going to, I just felt like this little tug to just sing harmonies in the background. That's it. I'm good. I'm going to work in film to pay off my debt, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in debt for going to film school. And then I would, you know, live my happily filmmaking life. The, the <laughs> struggle bus of being an artist. So that, that first entrance into music is really wanting to perhaps just sing harmonies, be in the background. And I guess that, that still shines through in your music in that you're constantly collaborating with others. You're, you're wanting others uh, around you. you. You're not the typical front woman who just wants to say, I'm the singer. You, you're constantly bringing others into, into your music. Yeah. I mean, even to this day, I work better with a second head and a second heart just because I can get so stuck on the little things and overcomplicate words for myself or ideas or a certain sound and not to mention feeling the pressure of having a certain image in the music industry that I, it just never felt like it was my identity, especially feeling like I was called which is like a whole other thing that I wrestle with so I started going to church at 14 years old and for six seven ten years or so it was a small church we would sing out of hymn books sometimes we had a pianist sometimes the pianist wasn't the greatest player but we (laughs) would all sing with our voices and you learn how to hear harmonies and you learn how to sing certain parts never knew how to read music but would take music classes to get that extra credit in university. And then started going to another church because the church I was a part of was an older generation. And I just wanted to make sure there were young people who wanted to pursue a relationship with Jesus that were my age who also worked in the arts. I just needed to see that for myself. And this particular community sang songs that felt real and human and that transcended any kind of faith practices with the in, like the foundation of Jesus as the one who was the example of love for people. And I just would sing harmonies um, from the pew and I just, the tug got stronger and stronger. And then I was like, okay, then I'll just sing background vocals, which I never, I remember going to audition to sing on the worship team. And I thought I was going to die. And Josh White said, okay, like, what's one of your favorite songs? I had practiced all these songs that I had learned from the hymn book. And, and he asked if I wanted to sing one of his songs that he would sing during a Sunday service. And I said, yes. And it went from singing background vocals to on Thursday night prayer to singing a verse or two or leading a song on a Sunday evening. And I just did that for myself, for the Lord. Uh, It was never anything that I thought I would end up doing for the past almost 10 years now. So when was it that those people around you started to say, Liz, there's, there's something more than a background vocalist in you? When did they start to call that out? Oh, man, I remember that day like it was yesterday. 
my friend Joe, he was one of the worship leaders and he really wanted women to kind of be seen in the forefront of uh, church and leading songs. And so he asked if I would sing this song called um, Enfold Me. I did not want to do it. Like, I thought I was going to have a heart attack, but for some reason my head shook yes in agreement, even though on the inside I was trembling and saying, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I remember the moment I finally sang, I felt like the room emptied. I felt like, one, my pupils were getting smaller and smaller, so it was getting darker, like I was about to faint. <laughs> and I just kept envisioning myself fainting off of stage into the front row. And all of a sudden, the room was empty, and I just felt like I was singing for one. Okay, Liz, if you don't want to sing for the people, sing for one, sing for the Lord. And when the song was over, I was like, covered in sweat. Like I felt like every pore on my body had opened up. And after the church service had ended and the worship team is like leaving the stage as people are being released and putting chairs back, my friend Nancy walks on stage in tears and she's like, what was that? And I almost started crying, but I didn't because I hate crying in front of people. And I said, I don't know. And every time I would lead a song at church, it felt like the whole room stood still. And I know this because one of the pastors told me this. He was like, when you started singing, no one got up. Like the whole room stood still. And then my friends started saying, maybe you should consider doing music. And then strangers started saying, I think there is a call over your life that but you have a wall up and I don't know what it's going to take for that wall to come down. And I had to start telling my friends, please stop telling me that music is my calling because I don't want to do that. And anytime a sermon would be taught at church about calling, I was hoping that it would be a form of release that I don't have to do music, that it could just be something I did on Sunday and that was fine and I could go and struggle and film because I was still doing that, which is Feast or Famine. Until after working on a TV show, the pastor of the church asked if I wanted to sing on a church record. And he asked me to sing the song that I sang at church that kind of started the whole movement of music. And people loved that song they love that track and Josh the pastor would announce it from the pulpit that he was going to make a record for me we're going to make a record for Liz Vice Liz Vice Liz Vice we're going to make a record for Liz Vice and my name is so easy to remember that ugh, I just hated it when people would say Liz Vice Liz Vice Liz Vice I just wanted to crawl up into a hole and hide yeah and two years later I recorded my first record, There's a Light. And this seems so opposite to, to most of what we see in culture, where people are grasping for fame. And, and we've seen lots of talent shows on television where people who obviously don't have a gifting will get up because they're so convinced and they're so grasping for it. But you are very hesitant to, to put yourself in, in that spotlight. And I guess that, again, gives us a key to why you continue to collaborate so well with others. You this is not something where you're wanting to put yourself in the spotlight. Mm -mm. I mean, and honestly, it's even interviews like this 
or I would have pastors, like one pastor in particular, kind of like pulled me to the side and was just curious as to why all these doors were opening up for me with music if I was so hesitant about it and asked if I feared that my hesitation would come off as false humility. And so that was just another added insecurity that I could never be honest about my stage fright and my doubts as being an artist and my doubts as doing anything that I felt called to. And the life of an artist is not a secure life. It's a very risky life. Yeah, I mean, you do see all these talent shows. I know so many musicians where they love being on stage. They feel like they were made to be on stage. And I've never had that confidence. Oh yeah, that's me, that's how I feel. And so I can be pretty quiet about my music career. There are some people who have no idea what I do until someone else mentions that I'm a musician because I just don't really talk about it because I still struggle with this, this, this thing that is natural that I keep getting invited into multiple spaces not and and that's the other thing is like not only am I singing these songs in church but I'm singing these songs in spaces where people would never enter into the church um I once had a guy interview me and say your music feels very familiar and nostalgic like I know it but I don't like that it mentions Jesus or I've had an article. I'm from Portland, Oregon, which is a very quote unquote non-church city and a particular um, very liberal uh, newspaper said that if, if you can make it singing about Jesus in Portland, Oregon, you can make it anywhere. And so <laughs> I'm like getting invited into these spaces that have a strip club upstairs, but I'm singing about Jesus or getting invited to these festivals or getting invited to sing with these bands that are not associated with any faith practice. And I just say yes. And I feel like I am meeting people that Jesus loves too, regardless of what the conventional church would teach from the pulpit. I do believe that I get to experience Jesus in so many different kinds of people. And I pray that my idea of salvation is way smaller in comparison to Jesus's plan um, of love and redemption. Uh, and that's why I say yes to collaborating with a lot of people is because I feel like I need other voices to create a whole picture Otherwise, it's just one-sided, and I only have one piece of the puzzle, and someone else has another piece, and then we work together, and it makes something beautiful that I don't think I could have done on my own. And if I did try to do it on my own, I would drive myself insane, and it would take years, years to accomplish anything. And initially, a lot of the music you were playing wasn't your own music, so to speak. It wasn't music that you were writing, and yet you very much made them your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's one song that I sang. Yeah, Enfold Me. I mean, that's like the catalyst song to where I am today. I honestly don't even remember what it sounds like uh, from the original artist because I've just sang it my way for so long. And, 
and even moving into my second record, Save Me, those songs arose from being on tour and self-doubt and talking about health issues and, and rising up from dark nights of my soul and meeting other people and, and standing up for people um, that may not even believe the same things that I believe, but I believe that they are created beings. Um, and they have just as right to be loved as I do um, by Jesus. Uh, and so it's, yeah, believe me, I'm just as surprised by my career as most people. And when I say it, it just comes off as maybe false humility, but that's why I don't say it very often. I, I'm still in the process of this unfolding story. I'm just a character. How does it feel for you knowing that your music is heard right across the world? You've had tracks that have been streamed over a million times. That must seem quite surreal for you. Oh, it's so surreal. But if my music is a reflection of who I am, then the fact that it's reaching all over the world is exactly what I want to do as a human being. I love traveling. I love stepping into other cultures to learn new ways of seeing people, food, um, storytelling, music. I love it. I love traveling so much. And yeah, it's an honor that my music has traveled this much. And I don't, not that I don't work hard for it, but I don't try to force something if it doesn't naturally unfold or if it's not naturally accepted like I'm not gonna I can't make anyone love my music and so it surprises me every day when I get a message from someone saying that they just discovered a song that came out eight years ago or just discovered a new single I don't know how it happens I literally release the music and then I have to continue to live my life so it's really cool that my song is all the way in Australia, blows me away. It's really cool. I hope to make it there in the flesh one day. <laughs> that would be wonderful. You're saying that your music seems to be accessible by people who would not normally walk into a church, and there's a, a combination in your music that I find quite rare. So, for instance, even going back to that first album, a song like Empty Me Out, where I've played that to so many people, and immediately they're drawn in by the music, even right from the intro. Then they hear your vocal, they're swept away with that. But there's a deepness to those lyrics that we don't even hear in church these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, believe me, I have my opinions about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, y'all, we cannot be cowards. I feel like a lot of, like, the church body plays it safe in a lot of ways. And I don't really think that we're meant to play it safe. Um, although... I physically would like to live a life of stability and safety. There's something that's deeply ingrained in also my loyalty to a promise that I made when I was 15, that if the spirit leads me somewhere, I say yes, even if I'm kicking and screaming. Um, and I think that this music transcends because it connects to humans. Everyone has a story. Everyone has struggled and had to overcome something. Everyone has doubts. Everyone has joys. 
And I, and I hope that my music continues to connect with all people in that way. But the root of it is my relationship with Jesus. Even in my own doubts and my own wrestling and my own frustrations, that mustard seed of faith is mighty strong inside of me. And I mean, even with the pandemic, I, I, was, I have been so burnt out from doing music. I was literally going to go to Switzerland to go to on a spiritual retreat to be in the mountains and also tick off a country on my bucket list that I wrote when I was on dialysis and then walk away from music because I was tired, burnt out, brain fried. The politics of music is exhausting and ready to be done. I made my two records pat on my back, let's move on to something else. And even with a pause, I've been doing music nonstop, but it's different. There's no pressure to sell tickets. There's no pressure to convince people to listen to my music or to like me. And yeah, I am just in awe. You would think that I would see this as an obvious, duh, this is what you're supposed to do, but it is a wrestling inside of me that I don't know if I'll ever overcome, but I will always choose to go where I know I'm supposed to go. And I might be on stage and that might be in a nice chair in an office. I have no idea. Your music, as you say, touches on things that we sometimes don't hear about in church. And and that brings me to a great song that, that you released about Christmas and, and a very different take on, on a refugee king. Tell us about that song. Oh, man. So, like I said, sometimes I get invited into these spaces with songwriters and I'm sitting there feeling like a chump, like, what? Do they not know that? I don't know what I'm doing. And we were challenged to rewrite Christmas songs that were more culturally accurate because the birth of Jesus is pretty tragic. A lot of children were killed due to this prophecy that Herod was told that there was going to be a new king in town. And so just to tell the story of Jesus, literally with no agenda, it's just like cultural context. His parents had to leave their country to keep this baby safe. The strange thing about this story is that they left their home country to go into a place that their ancestors were once enslaved. And this and was a place of danger and torment and um, oppression. And that was where they found safety, right? And so you think about people coming to America to find safety and refuge and fulfill the so-called American dream that they've heard through the grapevine in their land. And they come here knowing that they will receive oppression because it's just a given. Your skin color is your portion in America. And it, it might, it's going to be your curse here. That's just the foundation of America. But I didn't want to release that song with an agenda of, see, this is just like immigration. No, it is just the story of Jesus. No place for his parents, no country or tribe. And they ran and they ran and they ran 
And I wanted people to interpret the song for themselves. And I definitely have my interpretation of this song, but just laying out the facts as is, people will assume whatever they want about the story. And some people will choose to be blind because Jesus in a lot of places is this blonde hair, blue eyed, sheep toting, all American hero who's gonna redeem and oppress the bad guys and lift up the good guys. But you have to follow these rules. Where Jesus really is this country boy, this Jewish country boy from the sticks who had been called a bastard child because they knew Joseph wasn't his real dad. I wonder if he didn't look like uh, Joseph. He looked more like Mary. And they were poor, but he was smart as hell. And they're like, how does this 12-year-old know the scriptures so well? But no one wants to worship that Jesus. I don't even want to worship that Jesus, but that's the Jesus that I deeply, deeply connect to growing up, low income, single parent home, one of five kids with the mom that worked multiple jobs. And as a child, I made a promise to myself that I would surpass the stereotypes. I am not, and I, I never wanted to be a statistic. And I think because Jesus didn't play by the rule book, that's why he was killed by the very people who should have been respecting and honoring him. So, yeah, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting the narrative you're talking about there of this 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 white blue-eyed Jesus who is coming to to overthrow and and take political power is exactly what was expected back in the day, and yet we haven't learned that lesson. No. Oh, my goodness. That is like a whole other podcast that I honestly don't even feel like I'm smart enough to engage in other than speak from my own experience. Like, I, I th why didn't Jesus overthrow the political powers that be? Why did he allow them to kill him and allow his people to be oppressed? What was it about Jesus where these men were willing to be tortured to death because they loved him? I think about the moment Jesus died on the cross, I would have been heartbroken and absolutely just what was all of this for? To see my very hope dead on the cross. And honestly, as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know what? I don't blame Thomas. I want to see these scars too because I watched my hope die on a cross and I need to touch these scars. Because there's, I've never heard a resurrection. I don't know what redemption of a body means or looks like, even though they saw people come back to life I, and people healed. So I don't know. And I've seen beautiful things too. I have definitely been blessed in my life. I know I'm in a pandemic, but I have enough savings to survive for as long as I need to. And yet I'm still like, eh, you know what? It really would be nice to just like see some kind of glimmer of hope that Jesus is here involved in this political nightmare and involved in the injustices of my black brothers and sisters, involved in people oppressing me when they see me in a grocery store and following me to make sure I don't see, steal anything. Like, what is my role as one who says she follows the Lord, but also constantly reminded that I am other 
and there will never be justice for people that look like me or brown people in general. And yeah, it is, it is definitely, uh, I'm in that place right now wandering. Uh, like the great prayer of Psalm 13, oh, how long, Lord, will you hide your face? Yeah, it is an interesting uh, cross to bear. And, but it's so deep in me, like I'm not ready to throw in the towel on Jesus, just because I've also seen too much doing music and just in life. Hell, I'm a miracle right now that I'm alive. And I had a pastor remind me that if we were to truly live like Jesus, in essence, we would be crucified. So I don't think it's a lot to ask for justice and love, but it is, it is. (laughs) Not only am I a black person, I'm also a woman. So it's like, whoa, double portion, Lord, double portion. So even though you've, you've almost come to music kicking and screaming, and you've done it against this sort of background of this cry of the heart for justice. It must thrill you in some way to know that your music is actually bringing people closer to Jesus and not the, the cardboard cutout Jesus that we see presented so often, but the, the real Jesus, who he really is. Yes. I feel like it's easy for other people to see that, but I promise you I've been so burnt out from this quote-unquote call to sing these songs that create a space for all people to come together. Like, I remember the first show I ever played, a woman came up to me and said, you almost made me believe in Jesus. Or I've seen grown men cry at a bar saying, I haven't been to church in so long. Or I've had people ask me if my politics and my religious beliefs clash against one another because they didn't understand how I could be so kind to them. Um, And I'm just like, Lord, what have we done? And I don't have any answers other than my own experience. And I don't always feel like I'm actually playing a role in advancing the kingdom. So it's people like you and people who send me messages every single day on social media that kind of give me an idea that maybe I'm a part of something that exemplifies Jesus, but I don't always feel it. Especially now being isolated in an apartment, it's like, what is my role now? Like, how do I, is music enough? Are these songs enough? Me reposting things about injustices, is that enough? Uh, Is my story enough? I don't know. Well, Lizzie, it's it's absolutely a delight to to chat to you. Thank you so much for, for, for taking so much time to sharing your heart. And that's really what you've done. Thank you so much for the music that you have produced so far. And we look forward to, to hearing a whole lot more from you. I know it's a struggle, but I'm hoping that uh, you continue with that struggle because it does uh, a, a lot of good for people who are yearning to hear the realness of Jesus. So thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks, Rodney. Thanks for your desire to hear what I have to say. 
uh, I think that's the only way that I'll keep moving forward is people being willing to hear. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.